This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. In the news this episode, China reportedly flies the Comac C919 with an indigenous engine. Meanwhile, the Airbus final assembly line in China delivers its first A321. A really cool airline is proposed in Thailand. That's the name of it. United and Archer plan eVTOL air taxi service in Chicago. We still have no permanent FAA administrator. Orders for Osprey V-22s have dried up in autonomous suitcases. We also have an Australia news desk report and interviews from the Point Magoo Air Show. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 743 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight. With me is Rob Mark. He's contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI. He's got a little experience as an air traffic controller, and he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hi, Rob. A, a little. I, I think <laughs> 10 or 11 years was – I don't call it a little. I call it enough. Enough. <laughs> that's, that's another story. So uh, good evening and welcome. And I can't believe that we are 700 and – what episode is this again? 700 and- 743. How could we be that old? It's just not possible. <laughs> it kind of sneaks up on you. Uh, also with us is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian. He's from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everyone. Looking forward to a um, quiet evening where I won't have to say much. <laughs> well, we hope it's not too quiet. We've also got with us this episode our main man, Micah. Hi, Micah. Hey, everybody. Great to be here. I really appreciate being able to pinch hit for, for Max Trescott. And while I can't hit the home runs like he does, I'll get on base, I promise. <laughs> okay. You know what? That's how you win, by just getting them on base. You get enough of them on base, and the game's over. All right. We've got some aviation news from the past week. We've actually got quite a lot of it, so why don't we get started right away? You guys all ready? Ready in the Midwest. Mainly ready. Yeah, go. <laughs> Such massive enthusiasm from Mr. Vanderhoof. <laughs> from, from Smiley. <laughs> First story comes from the air current. As Congress debates TikTok, China flies its own commercial jet engine. Now, the Chinese Comac C919 is a single-aisle jet. It's in the Airbus uh, A320 and Boeing 737 class. First flight was in 2017, and they've already made a first delivery. That was to China Eastern Airlines last December 2022. As the C919 was being developed, China had no indigenous jet engine of that size class, but we knew that would change eventually. So until it did change, Comac selected the CFM International Leap 1C engine to power the C919. And yeah, you might remember the, the secret code. The Leap 1A is the uh, engine variant used on the Airbus A320 family. The Leap 1B is the 
variant used on the Boeing 737. And the 1C is for, well, you know, I don't know if the C stands for COMAC or China. I guess it works for both, but that's, uh, that's how you know which is which. Now, John Ostrauer reports in The Air Current that there is what appears to be footage on social media of a test aircraft flying with the Aero Engine Corporation of China CJ-1000A engine. Um, so it looks like the, <laughs> the Chinese have made progress developing that engine. And ultimately, they expect to replace the Leap 1C with the homegrown CJ-1000A uh, but uh, that's probably some years into the future. But this was a big differentiator uh, with the Chinese uh, aviation industries in the past as they have not had a jet engine of the you know, thrust and size class for this, this kind of an aircraft. So they are catching up. And the Russians are not. I remember we had Richard Abelafia on a couple years ago when we talked to him about the Comac C919 and the, the uh, Russian uh, Irkut and the prospects for international sales. And he pointed out then that yeah, China and Russia would need to, uh, these weren't his words exactly, but uh, the sort of paraphrasing is those countries would need to establish their, their credibility and track record, uh, their safety record before other airlines around the world would be, uh, you know, purchasing that equipment. But it's a step at a time. And as we know, the Chinese have a lot of patience developing this uh, capability as part of their, uh, you know, part of their, uh, what do they call it? Is that a five-year plan that the Chinese have, I think? Yeah, usually five-year plans. But, you know, I wonder, too, I, 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 obviously some of the engine issues are what you said, the reliability, the safety, the, um, you know, the, the uh, flexibility to use on various aircraft, but also it's the service network. Hmm. I mean, the one thing that keeps uh, Pratt and GE and, and Rolls-Royce uh, going around the world is that, you know, if you're, if you're AOG w- with a, a Rolls engine in uh, Sydney, Australia, you, you can be pretty darn sure you're going to be able to get parts darn quick. Uh, and now if that were a, a Chinese aircraft, uh, uh, you know, flying outside of the, uh, the, the PRC, I mean, that's mm, going to take a while to have all of the service network uh, put together. And I don't think anybody's going to spend the time to build it until they're sure this is really going to work. And that's not going to be, you know, the year after next. But I'm not sure if that's really going to affect the C919 because uh, it's primarily, you know, if it's it's not long range, it's going to be used internally in China. Uh, and if the you know, the Chinese government can obviously mandate it for the Chinese airlines that that's what they're going to buy and purchase. Eventually, they don't buy the 737, they don't buy the A320s, and they're retired. The C919 is going into effect, and just to keep it as only domestic manufacturing could probably keep it in business. Um, and eventually, you know, the Chinese always 
develop you know what 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 they need and and either copy it or or develop it themselves and and it engines have been a problem for them for a while we've talked about it on the on here on the geeks for for years especially in terms of the military but they'll learn the technology and eventually everybody does i mean look at uh, from a military perspective look at korea and developing the nuclear weapons which are getting better and better and their rockets with it as well now that's a military thing but Chinese do it commercially, and uh, they learn. They they take on the factories that, and and develop things much for much less money than we can do here in the USA. And eventually, their things get better and better. Ah, there's the key word. I think eventually, uh, you know. And, and again, you you may be absolutely right. I guess that leads to my thoughts of that story we have coming up later about uh, uh, Airbus uh, producing uh, you know A three twenties in China. And at what point will the Chinese say, well, let's see where, I mean, I don't know what the the stru- cost structure is for Airbus in China. Obviously, they it seems like they're there because they want to sell airplanes and deliver them to China. But when the, uh, the uh, 919 comes online, uh, that may change. But again, when will that be? I, I, I'm not... I'm not a prognosticator. We need Abelafia back on for that. But it might end up being cheaper for the Airbuses that are being built in China to be sold outside of China, even though it's the Airbus, because they can manufacture it for less than they can if they're building it in Europe, because the labor is much less expensive. Do you think Airbus would let them do that? Oh, I think they have, yeah. The... the the, the China- I mean, I guess I'm saying I can certainly understand them being built and sold within China for less. What, what's the Chinese currency again? I'm sorry. Yuan. I'm an idiot. Yuan. Yuan. Um, but I don't think Airbus would allow them to export any of those airplanes outside of China. But it's Airbus manufacturing, just like we get our iPhones from China. It's still Airbus. I think that well let's let's slide into this next story. This uh this is Airbus final assembly line in China delivers its first A321 Neo. Now Airbus now has four A320 family final assembly lines. One in Hamburg, Germany, of course Toulouse, France, uh, Mobile, Alabama, and now uh, or since 2008 Tianjin, China. And uh, to the, uh, the point we were making on the previous story China is such a huge market that companies just can't ignore it. But to do business in China, you know, you basically have to set up an operation there which has to be majority owned by by Chinese. So, you you know, you limit the, the revenue that you get and you at least divide it in half. And... You, you sort of have to do that in order to, to do business there. And so Airbus has built this final assembly uh, plant there. I believe they've delivered something like 600 aircraft out of that facility, A320 family. Mm-hmm. But they've just now delivered the first A321neo out of that plant. They've been delivering since uh, 2009, actually. Uh, so 600 sounds, uh, sounds about right. This particular A321 is going to a Chinese um, airline powered by Pratt & Whitney GTF engines. But, you know, you build a final assembly plant in China, well, the Chinese learn how to build an 
aviation and aircraft final assembly plant and how to operate it. So it's it's kind of a tough thing. You've, you've got to do these things for business purposes, but you know in the end we're training the teaching the you know the Chinese how to do it on their own and they'll they'll get there eventually. Engines are tough uh, because the the engineering technology, particularly in the turbine section, are um, a pretty significant. And other countries, I'm thinking of India, have tried to replicate the success of the you know the Western engine manufacturers, but they just don't have the you know the technology. You know, and it could have been with the A320. It sort of reminds me of the uh, the C series, the Bombardier C series. You know, they, we weren't going to allow it to be sold in the USA because it wasn't manufactured in the USA. So what happened? Airbus bought it, and now it's made in the USA. And it could have been a very similar thing that China said, "Well, we're not going to buy any, uh, you know, any Airbus products unless you manufacture them here." Okay. Yeah, but my question, and again, this is, I guess this is for Abulafia, but I I mean, do they sell, I mean, the aircraft that are manufactured in China, if they were going to deliver one to, say, uh, Malaysia, I mean, would it come at the same price point for an Airbus that was purchased, say, off the Hamburg line? And uh, forget the delivery charge, but I, I mean, wouldn't they have to have that balanced out, or is that, am I reading something into it that's not there. Well, in my experience, you know, when an airline is is buying aircraft, they're they're looking for the, the sort of the total economic package. Uh, it's not just, you know, what's the list price of an airplane? I mean, you know, what what value can you get? And that can include things like um well, you know, financing or it can include things like setting up a an overhaul shop or a repair facility in that country, um, you know, they, they always look for the value that you can bring. So it's a really complicated equation. Uh, part of that equation may be, okay, what, what's the, you know, what's the unit manufacturing cost? What is it delivering out of China versus delivering out of, out of Toulouse, for example? And maybe if the cost is, is lower coming out of China, that it gives Airbus more flexibility in terms of building a, an economic package that satisfies the airline. Uh, I don't know. But I don't know if if any of those 600 aircraft have been sold outside of China or just inside China. That It's a really good question, Rob. And offhand, I don't know. I don't know the well, answer. of course, we do have the history that, that McDonnell Douglas used to build DC-9s there in China for... It was a Comac, was it the 909? But it was a Comac product that was actually a DC-9. Um, I, you know, I... I'm sorry, I I don't have enough. We need a history because uh, hist- I've, I've got a, a historian. <laughs> I've got a pin and I, that I picked up at the Farnborough Air Show back in 2016 because Comac had a display. Actually, uh, Brian and I saw the mock-up of the 919. It looked very comfortable, and there was a pin and, it, and, and I can't remember the model number, but it was the DC9 or the MD80, whichever it was at the time. And but it was actually it, it was a Chinese-built version of it, and they put a Comac number on it. All right, so a little bit of homework, and uh, those of you listening have more more information. I think I think Rob's basic question is of the Airbus A three twenty family manufactured or fi- not manufactured to be accurate, uh, final assembled in China. Did all of those go to Chinese airlines, or did some of those go to other airlines? That's the question. 
And to answer to Rob and Micah's statements, it was C- it was Kayak that actually built, assembled, licensed MD-80s in China. The Comac ARJ-21, I just looked it up. Uh, the ARJ-21 is a regional jet. It's a smaller regional jet. That they, they tried to, well, they developed that before the C-919. They thought they would, you know, do, do a smaller regional plane first and learn how to get it certified, um, which they had a lot of trouble um, doing, and then move on to the larger C-919 is, is sort of, uh, you know, the next step. So the, the RJ was a, was a stepping stone in effect. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Rob, there's an article in One Mile at a Time, really cool airlines. But when I first saw this headline, I thought that this was some kind of a list that somebody made up of that's really cool airlines. But that's not what this is. No, in fact, it, it sounded like something I would say, which is, oh, that's cool. You know, but I realize that dates me. But um, no, it, it's it's coming uh, out of Thailand that uh, a, a, a fellow that uh, worked for, what airline did he work Knock for? Air, N-O-K. What is, that's also a China, no, a uh, Thai airline, is it not? Yeah, an LCC. Okay. So as I said, <laughs> it came out of, uh, out of Thailand that uh, a former airline official is, uh, is trying to build an, an airline and he's calling it really cool. And uh, again, I, I thought it was a joke. I mean, because, but then I guess if you take Breeze Airways uh, or Breeze Airlines a bit, a uh, couple of steps back, I could see somebody coming up with really cool. Um, but but I thought the uh, the one mile at a, uh, at a time guys uh, did make some valid points that they were not completely convinced that this was going to work. I mean, just because it had a uh, uh, an airline, a former airline executive at the helm, uh, they asked some very interesting marketing questions like, uh, how do you have, uh, what did it have, uh, uh, a very few uh, uh, business class seats in front, eight or something or whatever, and, and lots of economy in the back and Will it really work? Is it a workable model? Uh, who knows? But, you know, we've had so many almost airlines in this country that your mind, as soon as you hear a new airline, you tend to go, oh, yeah, okay, sure, sure. Uh, but, well, you know, I guess we'll see. It's hard to tell us exactly what uh, what this is. I mean, their website is reallycoolairlines.com. And uh, one of the... St- sort of marketing statements they they make is imagine a future where the norm of standard cabin configurations and cargo management is shattered replaced with a premium experience that's beyond your wildest dreams a future of travel with a revolutionary loyalty program that gives you unprecedented benefits faster perks and exclusive access to even free yearly business class privileges um okay uh <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining that now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know? yeah. Sounds but, you like know, a porn movie. <laughs> there's a couple of things that I, when I read this that I thought about. One is, first of all, I thought, wow, this would be great if an airline starts to compete on service and offering quality service as opposed to, you know, saving you 50 cents because, you know, people are buying things because it's 50 cents cheaper as opposed to being a better quality experience. And boy, wouldn't it be great if the airlines got competitive on the quality of service again? 
But then I read two bullet points in the article on One Mile at a Time, and either I'm too old or probably it's more like I'm just, this is really cool airlines, and I'm just not cool enough to understand these two lines. And I'm going to read them out loud because I would love for somebody to explain them to me. And I don't know if you guys can because I don't think you're cool enough either. (laughs) The airline will be managed by a, quote, crypto-native citizens of our really cool air GameFi, unquote. I don't even know what that means. And then the next line, the airline will be the first, quote, GameFi airline, unquote, whereby customers will be able to play blockchain games. Huh? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So please, younger airplane geeks listeners, that means those of you under the age of 65, uh, please tell us what that was that Micah just said, because I don't, I don't get it either. And it's even okay, all right to me. I mean, you can say, right, so you can start the email, and so you can start at, okay, boomers, here's, yeah. <laughs> and that's fine. Just explain it to us. We'd like to know. The, uh, they intend to purchase, it says, uh, four Airbus A350s by the end of this year. Uh, and they also have on the web page a uh, one of those little countdown timers uh, under their tagline "We fly the future." The image there's an image of the of the plane with a livery, and it says "Ready for boarding in." And here's the countdown. And as of this morning, anyway, it said 187 days. So you can do the math, but uh, supposedly, uh, whatever "ready for boarding" means. I mean, I think that means ready for for flights. Uh, in 187 days. So do the math and you can figure out when they're supposed to start service, I guess. Does anybody remember the Tim Buck 3 song, The Future's So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades? It just sort of reminds me of that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. So, but it's fun. They have a nice livery. Um, the, uh, the, the guy, the former CEO of uh, this Thai low-cost carrier, uh, since I guess since he left that airline, he's been running a travel agency, which is named Really, Really Cool. So um, he went from really, really cool travel agency to just plain really cool. I don't know if it's a step down and less cool maybe. I don't know. Well, I'm looking forward to the amazingly cool cruise ship. I, I think you're right. I don't think we, uh, we, we fit. All right. Next item. United Airlines and Archer announced first commercial electric air taxi route in Chicago. Rob, it's coming to your town. Well, it's actually sort of been here in a sense for a while because we have a uh, – obviously, the, the travel is going to happen between uh, Chicago O'Hare International Airport and downtown Chicago. And there has been a vertiport just west of the Chicago Loop for, oh, gosh, it must be six or seven years and there's been considerable amounts of uh, helicopter traffic in and out of there. And uh, the difference is that uh, when this new, uh, this new electric vertical takeoff and landing machine is ready for flight, which mm, nobody's quite sure when that's going to be yet, uh, they want to start service uh, with, uh, with United. And if you haven't seen the Archer, it's... It's uh, it's about as cool. Oh, I can't. I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. Because all the <laughs> all Jetson like all the well, I was going to say kind of Star Trek like. I mean, you, you know, let's face it. We we when you first watched Star Trek and you saw the Enterprise, you went, 
whoa, that's pretty neat. Uh, and then we've seen all this stuff since. But it's not only going to hold four people, I think five, maybe four. Um, and, and the trip from O'Hare to this Vertiport is probably 10 minutes uh, in flight. And, and they've already proven the run uh, can be made easily with, a hel- with helicopters. Uh, but then it's going to be how will the new Archer, when it is flying, uh, blend in with the, uh, you know, the Chicago terminal airspace? Um, and the one thing we don't know is that will uh, these EVO, EVTOLs fly under the same kinds of regulations that helicopters do, which allow them to to fly visually in much poorer visibility and uh, much poorer weather than than a fixed wing aircraft can do, um, or are they going to be uh, you know flown by a person like a helicopter? So there's a lot of things yet to go. But then there is the one minor thing they they also have to get the uh, the uh, Archer uh, certified. Sure, sure. So maybe we should describe this uh, this aircraft. It's got 12 electric motors, six on the um, leading edge of the wing, fixed wing, obviously, and six on the trailing edge. The trailing edge motors, propellers, rotors, uh, are for lift. The front six are for lift also, but they rotate forward for horizontal flight. Uh, they, um, right, as you said, uh, they said uh, four passengers plus a pilot. They're looking at a 150-mile-an-hour aircraft cruising at 2,000 feet, they say. It's got a 48-foot wingspan. And uh, United does have some orders or pre-orders. I forget which. Uh, I think uh, 100, perhaps. But in this uh, in this press release we have, Archer says they plan to deploy 6,000 of these by 2030. That's a lot of airplanes pretty quick. That's a lot of airplanes. But, you know, it is very sweet. I mean, it's beautiful looking. It looks very futuristic. It it kind of it reminds me sort of a, of an insect, but with that V tail, it's kind of almost, almost like a butterfly at the same time, even with the fuselage and the way the landing gear is. It, it really is a uh, an amazing looking aircraft. But, you know, I want to ask you guys something because we've got two experts here from the UAV Digest, and, and the two questions I have is, what would be the, the what would the noise be like with twelve rotors, electric engines like that? That's the first question, and the second question: If we're talking ten minutes flights at what did you say two thousand feet? How long is it going to take to recharge after going there and coming back to the heliport? What's the charge time to to recycle it and get it ready to go again? Yeah, that's a really good question. And Archer says ten minutes, ten minute charge time. Now that's it says average mission charge time, 10 minutes. That's what they've said. Now, I don't know if that actually means charging the batteries or if that means swapping out battery packs. It, it sounds like it means charging the batteries. But as for the noise level, well, they have a prototype. Um, and David and I have talked about this. Uh, they have a prototype that's flown. It's called the Maker. The full-sized craft is, uh, well, has not, uh, has not flown yet. Uh, the, it's the Midnight. I, I couldn't think of the name of the full-size class. So the Maker is the prototype, and the Midnight is the the full-size, the production concept. In terms of noise, uh, there's some videos of the of the Maker flying, and it 
it seems to be relatively quiet as far as these things go. But I haven't seen any, you know, any official measurements or decibel readings or, or anything like that. But you do tend to get kind of a buzzy sound from these, you know, high RPMs, small diameter propellers driven by electric motors. But yeah, that that's a really good question as to the the noise level of these things. Well, and that that'll come as part of the certification because mm. they're going to. I would assume they're going to have to at least uh, uh, be good enough to uh, to uh, meet the stage five noise uh, restrictions that that a turbojet, a turbine-powered airplane uh, must meet now if it's certified. Or, or again, maybe there's going to be some completely different uh, standard for electric aircraft. I, I don't know. Uh, and that's why I'm just saying that to say you're going to be delivering them in, in 18 months, um, roughly, they're not even certified yet. I, I, I'm sorry, I go back... Uh, 10, 12 years when uh, the eclipse, uh, you know, very light jet was going to darken the skies with hundreds and hundreds of aircraft flying everywhere for easy jet, or not easy jet, um, day jet. And uh, it turned out not to be, I, I you know, and, and the problem is it, it didn't turn out very well for them. In fact, they don't build eclipses anymore. But I, I guess I have to be careful that I don't get too cynical about new technology. I'm just saying it seems to me like there are so many right now. And I realize I'm old. Uh, as as Micah said, you know, we're what, what did you call us? Boomer boomer boys? Or? Yeah, we're boomers. Boomers. Boomer boys, right. Um I but but how many uh I saw a story, I thought it said something like uh, almost a hundred uh electric uh uh, urban air mobility aircraft are in the works or in in the stages of being created or whatever. I can't even get my arms around that. So again, uh, listeners, uh, you, you you know where you can find me. You can uh, call me the old uh, cynical fart, but I'm just not sure. 6,000 of them by 2030. Now, 2030 sounds like a long way off. It's seven years. Odds are I'm probably going to be alive for that. So it's not that far away. And that's 857 aircraft a year. And, and it's that's not if even it were certified. certified. That's if, it were, yes. if it were certified today. So I think it's a little optimistic. I hope it happens. It would be great. But Seems a little optimistic to me. But now you did mention odds are that you would be around. What kind of money are you willing to put behind <laughs> that statement? All you have to do is take out an insurance policy on me and you're all set. <laughs> <laughs> all right, next story. Uh, let's see. This is from CBS News. Biden's pick to lead FAA draws name from consideration after GOP criticism. So, David, we had a... Uh, <laughs> A um, a candidate to be the FAA administrator come from the White House, but uh, it's run into problems in Congress. Can we ever get the FAA to do anything right? I I, I don't know. It, it just sure. Uh, it just need a okay. little nudge. What? Name well, name one thing. Okay, the FAA uh, about two weeks ago decided that the uh, the length of the recording on a cockpit voice recorder on a transport aircraft should be increased from two hours to 25. And it only took them 
five years from the time the NTSB actually uh, uh, said it was it was a needed a necessary item, and then of course it took those uh, hearings on the Hill uh, a few weeks ago during the safety summit, in which the NTSB administrator said, "Do you know what?" There's no reason we can't have 25 hours of recording time on current technology flight data recorders. And she said it publicly in front of all these people. And suddenly, two days later, the FAA said, you know what? We've decided we're going to put 25 hours of recording on these uh, flight data recorders. Uh, so they just need a little uh, little nudge. A little push. Well, we've been ha- we've had an acting administrator of the FAA since March 2022, about a year, and the White House had nominated Philip Washington as the uh, candidate to be administrator, and so that has to be approved by Congress. Just the Senate does does just the Senate approve the uh, administrator? I, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, Washington had been CEO of Denver International Airport, but not for that long, eh, less than two years. And that's the sum total of his uh, aviation experience. And so some of the some of the senators, uh, well, actually a lot of the senators, uh, particularly a lot of the Republican senators, but also some of the Democrat and independent senators, Uh, did not think that he was properly qualified for that job because of his limited experience in the uh, the aviation sector. Now, that compares to the acting administrator, Billy Nolan, who's uh, a pilot. He's held uh, different safety jobs at three different airlines, I guess. Um, A very different kind of a resume. Um, So uh, Washington, after this, you know, delaying for months and months, pulled his name from uh, from consideration can can hardly blame him. It's either you know do it or don't. But you know let's move forward. Well, uh, Nolan, which I didn't understand why he uh, really couldn't have just been nominated as the uh, permanent administrator until I read the the uh, story that said that uh, Washington was involved in something in the Biden transition team. Uh, when, uh, he was Biden a transportation. He was part of uh, tra- of Biden's transportation transition team. Is and I don't know what transportation transition team means, but that's specifically what it says on uh, on his bio page. Y- yeah, so it kind of sounded to me like uh, Biden owed somebody a favor, and uh, I mean, I'm maybe it's not that, but it it looks like that. And and when you compare the experience of the two. Um, yeah, they're not even close. And then, and then, of course, there was that incredibly uh, embarrassing uh, hearing uh, in the Senate oh, a month ago, where they were asking Washington all these really tough aviation questions, like, "Can you tell me the difference between IFR and VFR?" And he said, "No." Uh, they said, "Can you?" talk to us about the various uh, classes of airspace around a terminal area, what some of those might be. He said, no. Uh, You know, really very basic airplane kind of questions that Nolan probably could have have figured out. And, And no matter what they asked Washington, he just said, I don't know. 
I don't know. Now, I grant you, it was pretty pretty well choreographed. I mean, they knew he wasn't going to be able to answer those questions, which is why the, the Republicans asked them. But it, it did a pretty good job of making the guy look like uh, he wasn't the man for the job. It's interesting. In, in some organizations, senior leadership needs to have an intimate knowledge of the business or, you know, whatever the topic is. But sometimes leadership can be effective in terms of running that organization if they're really good leaders. And I'm sure that we asked you, Rob, you know, which is the case with the FAA, or we ask any pilot, they're probably going to lean more towards thinking the FAA administrator really should have flying experience or airline experience. Do you, you know, do you buy that? It's funny because I took the, the, the same tack with some of my friends that you just did about the fact that, you know, we don't really know what makes somebody qualified to, to uh, be the administrator of, uh, of an agency. Uh, is it, is it pure leadership and uh, some knowledge, as you pointed out, about the about the industry, uh, except uh, I, one of you guys said this earlier, maybe it was David, about, you know, FAA does not have a real great track record of uh, having leaders in their organization at almost any level. They have great bureaucrats, people that can quote the manuals to you and say, this is how we do it. The 71 10.65 E paragraph four says you must do this. Well, yeah, but, but is that really what you need to lead an organization? Now, maybe that same argument would, would work for almost any agency from any, uh, any portion of the government. I, I'm only familiar with this one. So, you know, I, I don't know, but I, I just, my gut says that, Washington probably wasn't the guy for the the job. And again, just tell me why you couldn't just put Billy Nolan in there as the administrator. Just tell me why he can't be the administrator when he's already been doing the job. He knows more about it than Washington did. He's been at it for a year. There's no doubt in my mind that he has leadership skills. You know, he uh, uh, he was tw- in, in in the army for 24 years and 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 left there as command sergeant major. That says a lot. That's a, that's a high ranking NCO. Uh, he was stationed at Fort Carson, but and you know, and he managed to get a, a bachelor's degree in, uh, in in business administration and a master's in management. But then he worked for regional transportation district for in Colorado, and then he worked as uh, uh, you know the CEO of uh, I'm sorry the CEO of, of the Los Angeles Metro system, and from there he went to the airport. I think you want all those skills, but you want to have some aviation skills as well if you're going to be the leader of the FAA. It's like I wouldn't want somebody running the FCC who hadn't worked in radio at some point in their life. It's the same thing, you know. And I don't think the FCC has a permanent administrator either, does it? I think they do right now. Oh, do they? But but anyway, uh, so I I don't know why he was appointed. He certainly is a skilled individual. I'm not sure if he was the right person for this job. All right, moving on. Um, Military.com has an article. Military quietly stops buying Ospreys as aircraft faces an uncertain future. So, uh, of course, the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Air Force fly the 
V-22, Osprey. So does the Japan Self-Defense Force. Uh, but uh, the, the U.S. Uh, uh, military has uh, no plans to purchase any more. There are some, uh, some scheduled deliveries out there through 2025, but um, I don't know, David. Does this mean that you know the the Osprey is is winding down as a program? Well, yes, but we've known that for this is not news. <laughs> um, basically, the program is has wound down. The Boeing and Bell are have basically moved on to the next generation of vehicles with the um, the Army programs. There hasn't been any exports other than Japan. Um, Israel has occasionally gone back and forth, but um, they have never really signed on, and they just haven't had any other buyers out there for it. And the maximum buys for all of the services—the army, the Na- I mean the the navy, the marines, and the air force—have reached their max. So. There are serious, still serious problems with the 22. Um, the clutch, what most people don't realize is what one of the most sophisticated things about the V-22 is the fact that it can fly on one engine, but it drives both propellers. Now, a single engine, a single propeller helicopter can do something called auto rotation, Right. Things like 47s and 46s are dual engine, and usually they have a transmission that can drive both rotors under one engine. The the 22 is the same, but it has a serious gear. Because of the way it works, it has serious differences in gearboxes in the transmissions because, A, the engines rotate with the propellers, so they have to be able to rotate, plus the actual, also the fact that that whole wing folds flush against the fuselage. The end, So the, it's a very complicated system, and there have been several failures on that system that are pilot induced. So the air, the air force and the uh, Marines are looking for the, for Boeing and Bell to come up with a, a more sophisticated warning system. But right now the, the V 22 has reached its production limit. Um, unless somebody comes along and wants to buy a bunch more, I don't think um, we'll be seeing any more being produced by Bell and Boeing. And, they already have sort of planned their way for the obsolescence of the the helicopter. So Bell is well on its way to with the V the 280 Valor to become for their future helicopter. And Boeing did not do well because the um, Sikorsky Boeing program did not happen. So, but Boeing probably will be producing. 47s for another 15 years at least um, since the CH-47 doesn't have a replacement except another CH-47. So that's where we are. So the V-22 is just is a matured program. And like a lot of other programs, um, once it goes out of production, everyone will start hollering that it should still be in production, <laughs> which is typical of every military program 
from the A-10 to the F-14 to the F-22. Yeah, it always seems to be that when these prod- when these things wind down, suddenly um, its obsolescence has caught the attention of people. And why did we cancel that program? In this case, it, it program wasn't canceled earlier prematurely. It's just it has run its production run. Of course. I was going to say, but, you know, they they say that they're going to be flying what we currently have, and they're going to be taking deliveries for a while, but they're going to be flying what we have until through the 2050s, and we have a direct replacement that's coming out, or so we think, with the V-280 Valor. And and we've got to remember that this is really, in terms of a tilt rotor, it's, it's first-generation technology in some respects. We had the XV-15, and that was developed into this, the V-22. This is about third- or fourth-generation technology, Micah. Not in service. Tilt rotors have been around since the 40s. So, yes, it's the first production aircraft, but tilt rotors have been around since the, since the beginning, since with helicopters from the beginning. So, but that being said, you are correct. It's the first production aircraft where it was um, common use as right. a tilt rotor. Right. And they're just wearing a bit more than, a bit more quickly, I think, than what, what they had anticipated. I, I was going to ask about, we were speaking about tilt about tilt rotors. <laughs> we're speaking about tilt rotors. Okay. You could take that part out, uh, uh, Bax, when you're editing. Uh, but we, <laughs> yeah, you wacky <laughs> rabbit. Wascally, wascally rabbit. Um, but anyway, we, we look at the civil side and the, uh, uh, the uh, Augusta 609, I think it was, or whatever, it's been around for, that design of a tilt rotor has been around for, it's it's over 20 years old, and it's still not certified. I think it's passed on to the, uh, to the uh, uh, next generation. Leonardo produces it in Philadelphia, and it is certified. It is in, in oh, is production, it? Oh, I... and, and it is certified. They are producing... Yeah, but but that design is... More than 20 years old. I mean, not the design certified, but the concept is what I was after. Yes, that concept was done. Bell, the original Bell, Augusta Bell um, 609, which is now produced by Leonardo, was a tandem on done about the same time as the V-22. So you're talking about that's how old that technology is. Um, but it is now online. It's certified. Um, it is in production, actually, as a matter of fact. It's in production around the corner from me at Northeast Philadelphia Airport at Leonardo. And they have purchased, they have orders out there. So, But again, that's another one of those. This technology is has been very long to mature and i think that's what michael was trying to get at earlier is it's it's thank you david it's a it's long to mature however it's not going away i mean the the advantages of being a tilt rotor um where you have the ability to fly at a turboprop speed and take off and land vertically is necessary in modern environments you know um what might kill the tilt rotor and the advantage of the tilt rotor will be evertol i mean if evertol takes off or becomes far as successful as everyone thinks it's going to be the use of a high speed aircraft like a tilt rotor will 
will diminish and it'll also diminish the use of helicopters. That whole genre of vertical flight is sort of in a nebulous area, but eventually it will all wash out. So what what David said, that, yeah. I'm, <laughs> no, because that's what I was wondering is that it's been coming for so long and, and we're already working on a next generation of uh, differently powered uh, or alternately powered uh, uh, vertical lift aircraft. And I, I thought, is this ever really going to happen? Is it worth that it, you know, it's going to go. But I think it, it, the proof will be in the pudding, David, is that uh, I'd love to see who's going to be the first customer or the first uh, customer for the first hundred of them or something like that. But uh, that remains to be seen, I guess. But can't you drive over there and get us an interview? Or uh, since, since a couple of the Leonardo guys are on my board of directors, I think I can get you that information. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe we should have one of those guys on the show. That'd yeah. be kind of. I think. I think people would find that an interesting, uh, an interesting topic, and especially in light of uh, this uh, announcement from the uh, Boeing. Uh, I'm sorry, from the uh, Osprey line of, you know, the well, the poor Osprey has no successor then. Huh? Yeah, it does. Well, I mean, the V280 Valor. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. See, I don't know nothing about those things with propellers. Because huh? propellers are not designed to be on the top. They are designed to be in the front or the back. You don't pay I, any I, attention to the gray stuff anyway. No, I, I mean, come on. Um, that's true. All right, one last item. This is uh, just for fun. This is an autonomous suitcase decides it doesn't want to fly. And uh, somebody tweeted a, a video. Uh, <laughs> it says, imagine that you are ready, uh, that you are already on the plane and you see your luggage flee down the runway. It's really hysterical. There's this this piece of luggage that does just just that. It goes driving itself down the taxiway um, <laughs> until until some kind of a uh, ground support uh, truck comes along and uh, blocks it from continuing on its path. Uh, it's I don't know. It's humorous. I got a big chuckle out of it. I don't know what you, what you guys thought. At least somebody thought that this um, might have been blown by the wind. But I don't think so. I think this is one of those autonomous suitcases. This is why you need air tags if you're going to buy an autonomous suitcase. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. It might decide, you know, and you got to keep the same calendar because it might decide it's supposed to be in Hawaii when you're actually going to Chicago. You know. Well, but you know what they didn't tell me at Apple was uh, I bought air tags for. I've got them for my keys, for uh, uh, for my uh, one of my bags, and for uh, some of something else. But, oh, I have one uh, on uh, Archie's collar, too, uh, because he's been known to run through the neighborhood, and I can, instead of chasing him, I can just, oh, here he comes. Oh, he's coming around that way. All right, let's go that way. You know, and anyhow, but, but they didn't tell me that you need to replace the batteries once a year. And, and I thought, okay, maybe I didn't get the memo, uh, but wouldn't it be just crappy to find out that you had a tag on it and then it didn't work because the battery was dead and you didn't even know you were supposed to replace it. When you look at your, your AirTag, uh, find my iPhone, and you go to your AirTags there and you hit the AirTag uh, thing and you, you press on it, it'll tell you which version you have and it'll tell you how much power. If, if the battery's going bad, it'll let you know that it's going bad with a little, with a little note on it. So where's my iPhone? 
I can't find your iPhone, but I can see the serial number of my AirTag when I touch on it, and I can see the firmware version is 2.036, and if the battery were low, I'd get a low battery signal. But there is a secret about those batteries you need to know about that our listeners should know about. Okay. If you decide you need to replace the battery and it's easy to do, do not use a Duracell battery. Because Duracell is advertising how their batteries are designed with a bitter flavor on them for, you know, to keep kids from swallowing them. But that bitter flavor also does not allow for full contact in the AirTag. And the Duracell batteries will not work in the AirTag. You need to use another brand. Now you tell me. I just went and bought Duracells yesterday. I literally changed the battery in my AirTag yesterday, and now I have to go look and see what kind it was. <laughs> I don't know. Well, if, if you're getting a signal, then you're okay. But, but this is what, uh, what, what, ha- what has been reported, that the, the ones with the, the flavor on them uh, to keep kids from swallowing them, although I don't anyway, I don't want to talk about how we or get so concerned about those things. You know, kids are always putting batteries in their mouth, I guess. Okay. Um, anyway. They used to put beans up their nose. Um, okay. Uh, All right. I will, uh, yeah, okay. So you learn something here new, uh, something new every show. There's something valuable on the Airplane Geeks. If you haven't figured that out, then... Well, Airplane Geeks doesn't mean we're just geeks about airplanes. No, I mean, it means we're geeks, period, but it doesn't I never put beans mean, up my nose. Well, okay. my mama said not to put beans in my ears. Okay. That's another song. What's up with the geeks? Uh, let's see, Micah, what can you tell us? Well, a couple of things are going on. It was recently, I was visiting some friends that have a home up in, near Limestone, Maine, and they told me that on March 14th, I didn't find out till it was all over, there was a ski plane fly-in where all these aircraft, all these, these little airplanes on skis were flying in up to Easton, Maine, right nearby in Arusta County, and, uh, and, and had a fly-in like, like we have in the summer, except it was cold and it was snow. And uh, apparently they've been, this is the second year of it happening, and uh, maybe next year if I can get a really warm coat and some fancy boots, I might even go up and, and take part in it. That's... Uh, Really exciting. I think that would be fun. And then the other thing that uh, I found exciting, if, if you guys remember back to episode 731, our Bits and Pieces number 30, we interviewed uh, Christopher uh, Chaput, uh, who is the president of DG Fuels. And uh, that's a program, a project that's creating uh, uh, sustainable aviation fuel. And they are opening up a plant to create this out of waste materials and stranded electricity up in Limestone, Maine at the old uh, Air Force Base, the old Loring Air Force Base. And, you know, it sounded like pie in the sky, although it sounded like a great program. And the way they were doing it, it was really seemed sustainable to me. But I found out it's, it's truly on. It's really happening. I've heard about some local contracts that have been signed, and the work is beginning. So that's very exciting. Cool. All right. We've also got some news from our friend Brian Coleman. I don't know. Micah, do you want to, uh, do you want to go over this? 
Well, Brian uh, has, uh, you know, he started his adventure 13 months ago. And what's back when just a little bit before that, we started the podcast, The Journey is the Reward. And he set a goal to fly the remaining 300,000 miles that he needed in less than 18 months to be able to complete his 3 million miles and get his United 1K lifetime status. And in order to do that, he had to fly over 23,000 miles a month. And he did it all on United Aircraft. And he's done it. He thought he was going to do it in 18 months. He got it done in 13 months. And just before we started the show, we got a text from our intrepid traveler in South Africa saying he only has 6,126 miles to go. And those numbers should be completed someplace over the Atlantic Ocean before next week's episode comes out wow what an accomplishment i'm so proud of him and so pleased that he was able to do it and so happy that he invited me to take a little part in it it's a little crazy but i know i like a little crazy brian is a little crazy there's no doubt about it but i think we all are here on the geeks yeah 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 in fact it's funny when i saw that tweet as as well uh i said so then there's only one thing left and that's to completely duplicate this status on Delta when you when you finish. And he went, no, I've got quite a few miles on, on America, and that's going to be my next uh, hurdle. And I went, you know what? <laughs> if anybody could do it, it's Brian. Yeah. I think he could. And that's been the joke all along. He's got a million miles already on American Airlines. So I said, look, you're going to finish United? Then we'll, then we'll work on American then we can start working on Delta. But let's get American finished up. So speaking of Brian, in between his his mile runs here, he attended the Point Magoo Air Show that was March 18th and 19th this year. It's an old show. It goes back to 1960 when it was actually called the Space Fair. Uh, but uh, this year is the um, 75th anniversary of the Navy at Point Magoo, and so they uh, featured some uh, dual demonstration teams. They had the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds, which doesn't happen together very often. But Brian sent us some interviews. He spoke with Captain Papp, who's a flight nurse with the Air National Guard. Haven't run across a flight nurse in the Guard. Um, she flies primarily on a, a C-130. And then uh, Brian also spoke with uh, Matt uh, from Cal Aero. He's the uh, president of California Aeronautical University. He was actually our guest back in episode 406, which was about mm, seven years ago, give or take. Uh, and then third interview is with uh, Shay, who's uh, a Coast Guard helicopter mechanic. He, uh, he flies as air crew in addition, and also he's a hoist operator for search and rescue. So we've got those three interviews that Brian recorded from the Point Magoo air show. We'll start out with uh, Captain Pap, then to uh, uh, Matt, and finally with Shay. I'm here with Captain Pap of the Air National Guard. Captain Pap, welcome to the Airplane Geeks. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And you have an unusual job within the Air National Guard. I suppose you can call it that, yeah. Um, I'm a flight nurse. I work over here in Channel Islands, also known as Hollywood Air National Guard. Been here for four years, and what a different facet when it comes to providing medical care. You get to do it in the sky. 
And the aircraft that you're based off of? Uh, my primary aircraft is the C-130J out here. Uh, fortunately, we share our building with the uh, 115th Air Wing, and we actually, as flight nurses, have the opportunity to fly on several different aircrafts, including the uh, C-17, KC-135, sometimes the C-5, C-12, uh, KC-46. But yes, my, my baby is this Indiana Jones uh, <laughs> C-130, as I like to call it. And this is sort of the best of both worlds for you, right? Because you get to be a nurse and you get to fly an aircraft. It's fascinating. I decided that I wanted to be a nurse um, a little bit later in life, kind of did things backwards. But I always had a dream to be some way related into, in you know, a career with aviation. And then knowing that the Air Force had a lot of opportunities within healthcare, I found myself with the perfect career combined with being able to find opportunities through the Guard. It just really meant what I was looking for in my lifestyle. So whether it comes to like top of line training, uh, the opportunities to fly and travel places, or just being, you know, it, it's very, it's very near and dear to me being able to be a member that just works in the level of service, obviously, as being a nurse, but being able to care for our service members and family members uh, when they're mm -hmm. overseas, it's, it's brought a lot of different exposure and experience. And I think a lot of our listeners might know about the, if I call them the traditional branches of service, you know, Navy, Air Force, Marines, the Air National Guard. I'm not sure if people are so familiar with them. Can you talk a little bit about what the mission of the Air National Guard is? Sure, I'd be happy to. The issue that people often wonder is, so Air National Guard, how's that different from the reserves? How's that different from active duty? But the Air National Guard, we have the opportunity to serve stateside within Title 32 orders. So in the case of a natural disaster within our country, or uh, for instance, with COVID, um, we had a lot of nurses and medical uh, staff that were also service members that worked in the hospitals that needed to be prioritized to help those hospitals that were suffering were the most needing. Mm -hmm. um, so they were able to utilize our, our National Guard, including Air National Guard. Now, on the other hand, we also serve um, in the capacity of federal orders. So any shortfall deployments, as well as filling the cycles that are needed, we keep up to date with all of our training um, as qualified air crew and flight nurses. And then when we're needed, we go overseas and, and serve there. And have you been to any any overseas deployments yourself? Fortunately, I have been. And having that exposure and opportunity to see you know, all of our different military members, whether it's Marines, you know, Air Force, Navy, Army, we are out there supporting them as Air Force and medical flight nursing mm -hmm. and uh, air medical evac and, and assisting them all. So how much of your job is focused around air evacuation versus medical care? That's very interesting. So it's, it's all a part of the training and requirements that go into performing our jobs. So I would say about equal amount of time okay. when we are performing our jobs here because we need to make sure that we're performing our jobs safely and the atmosphere of including like the physiological changes that happen as you you know increase in altitude in an airplane uh, have a completely different effect on patients mm -hmm. um, whether it's like hypoxia but fortunately most of our members especially in the guard do work in the medical field for their civilian careers myself included so being in the guard we're, we're keeping up with those flying requirements we're keeping up with what we need to learn honestly oftentimes a higher level of knowledge and, and responsibility when it comes to critical care and trauma training mm -hmm. but on our civilian side we're, we're incorporating our skills and bringing the best of of what we learn here to the military yeah that's incredible and a, and a much needed service that you're providing as well 
Yeah, I feel really good about being out here. It's been a very cool experience. Uh, I feel very blessed. So when you're deployed on a mission, I think it's obvious for people to think of you supporting service members, but you also support their families as well if, let's say, any critical care were to take place or an evacuation. Am I right? Absolutely. So what might happen is, uh, you know, family members are oftentimes uh, able to deploy with their their service member. And if something happens to you know, a family member, we're there to make sure that we support in getting everybody back home through air medical evacuation. Mm-hmm. So one of the challenges recently has been COVID. Can you talk about any of the missions you might have served on in support of COVID? So shortly after... Um, my, my four-year career thus far starting um, for Air National Guard, we actually had, as we all experienced, COVID. Um, about two days before Christmas, I got a call, and it seemed as though California was experiencing really high surges of uh, COVID visits for hospitalizations in addition to having shortages in staffing. Uh, a lot of nurses and, and healthcare workers are becoming sick. So we were able to support the stateside mission, um, myself included, where we were augmenting uh, hospital staff within their emergency departments and their uh, critical care units. And uh, that was definitely a, it was very inspiring to see the services that we have come together to really help where the need was at the time. And then if people are interested in learning more about the Air National Guard, where should they go? We have some recruiters that are out here, fortunately, for the air show. Best place I would say to start, you can log on to uh, the Air Force website and search recruiting. The AFSC, as we call it, the job title that you'd be searching would be a 46F for a flight nurse. We also have uh, four ends that fly in the medical capacity of uh, yeah, providing EMT medic mm-hmm. uh, services in the air. So I would encourage you to reach out that way. We're always looking, excuse me, we're always looking for support. Uh, if you have any questions, please start looking out that way, and, and hopefully we can answer your questions for you. And these are skills where you don't necessarily have to come in being a fully certified nurse or EMT, right? The military will provide that training as well, correct? That is correct. There are so many different ways. If you are an experienced nurse, you can come in and commissions. Uh, that's my experience, at least. Another way is if you're looking to be a nurse, there are job opportunities available that could support furthering education um, through you know, through financial aid opportunities and hopefully get that individual inspired to, to get to their nursing school destination right. if that's what they're looking for. Awesome. Captain Pep, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was very great meeting you. All right, here's Brian speaking with Matt from the California Aeronautical University. I am here with Matt, longtime friend of the show from California Aeronautical University. Matt, welcome back to Airplane Geeks. Hey, it's been many years, COVID and all, and uh, good to be back with you guys. Yeah, and I think when I first came across you at an air show, you guys were just starting out. I think you had a campus in Ventura and you just started the one in Bakersfield. You guys have grown a little bit since then. Yeah, our main main 22-acre campus in Bakersfield has grown quite a bit. Uh, we have on-campus housing. We're uh, serving about 350 students now in uh, maintenance and flight and management, everything aviation. The aircraft that you have has kind of grown as well. So what's your fleet like these days? You know, with growth comes a lot of headaches. Uh, but, uh, 
Yeah, no, we're, we're very pleased. I mean, not only have grown in airline partnerships and, you know, all of our students now can feed into uh, all these different pathways with airlines and the regional and even majors are starting to get uh, more excited about opportunities with students and, and creating pathways. But yeah, in order to pull that off, uh, we need just under 40 aircraft uh, to now serve all of our student population from 172 uh, S models, G1000 equipped, all the fun bells and whistles and autopilots to Citabria and Super Decathlon to go flipsy and have some fun. You now also have a maintenance program as well. You know, I am really excited that you actually brought that up because one thing that doesn't get enough attention are the maintainers. And we need maintenance people to keep these planes flying and going on vacation so yeah we have a 147 program now and it seems like everyone wants the glory of being a pilot but there's an awful lot of other careers within aviation there's tons i mean for every pilot and an aircraft that's out there you need you know probably dozens of maintainers to keep that thing flying and you need all the administrative support the accounting uh i mean you know a profession in aviation it doesn't get any any sweeter than that One of the things that we like doing on the show is promoting women in aviation. How have the women been coming along in your program? You know, we're very proud at California Aeronautical University for the diversity that we have. And uh, we have about 18% women uh, in our population, which is a little bit more than uh, you find out in the industry. But women are coming on strong. You're seeing those numbers increase everywhere, and uh, we're happy to be part uh, part of that effort. That's great. If some of our listeners are interested in getting their uh, maintenance certificate or becoming a pilot, how's the best way to get in touch with y'all? Yeah, our program is a three-year bachelor's degree program for the pilot, about an 18-month program for a maintainer. And then we have programs varying for uh, different aviation pursuits. But you can find all of it at our website at calero.edu, C-A-L-A-E-R-O.edu. And what other things should our listeners know about Cal Aero? You know, we're always trying to develop uh, great things in the community and keep, uh, keep our relationships strong. We're very excited about our relationship with the Air Force. Uh, this summer we're part of the AIM High uh, Academy. We're going to be training 72 uh, Air Force selectees uh, that are really? going to be working their way to earn their solo milestone in uh, piloting to, to reach youth and others and uh, we're also excited to announce uh, our relationship with delta and becoming a delta propel school Uh, that's happening actually next week so then when someone goes through your program is it they are automatically set up with an interview with delta or how does that work yeah through the relationship with the delta propel partner schools uh, delta comes they'll meet with our students they create a really good mentorship relationship and then through the different pathways to delta at the regionals that they have uh you'll go work for the regionals and it's kind of a one interview and and move on up uh, and delta is very supportive and we're excited to be part of that family because uh the mentorships and just their investment that they're making in the in the earlier generation pilots with all the growth that you've gone through how are you getting instructors <laughs> you know that the beautiful thing about uh, having the numbers of students that we have in our programs now is we we get to choose from our own. Part of our program, students become a CFI, a double I, while they're on their way earning their multi as well. So we tell them right when they start with us, they're, we're really interviewing them not to be a student, but to be our next CFI. 
Yeah, so that's nice. So they get some income as well, or they get reduced tuition as a result of that? How does that work out? They earn income. They're paid uh, market market wages, and uh, they can earn those 700 hours through their restricted ATP that our students are eligible for. Right. Uh, they're making... Uh, fairly good money uh, in those 700 hours to help pay off some of that some of that debt yeah boy i wish i wasn't so old and i could um, actually participate in the program you and me both i mean <laughs> I, I enjoy flying my planes and, and having fun and staying uh, part of the ga community but boy these uh these students have a great opportunity ahead of them and we should have gone to one of these uh schools when we were younger yep absolutely what else should i have asked you that i didn't you know, I, I'm just excited to be back here on uh, the show. It's neat to see what you guys have done over the years, keeping us all informed about what's happening in aviation. And I really uh, think it's neat. Some of our earlier students that heard us on the show the first time uh, actually told me that that's why they're attending California Aeronautical University. So you have some pretty devout listeners, and you're a good influence in the market. Yeah, so not only do we spawn other podcasts, we actually spawn pilots. So I kind of like that. You, you know, you could be blamed. You could be blamed for the next generation, like the rest of us. <laughs> Perfect. Now here's Brian with Shay, the Coast Guard helicopter mechanic. And I'm here at Point Magoo Naval Air Station, and have come across one of the mostly forgotten about branches of the service. <laughs> Yeah, you can laugh on that one. And it's the Coast Guard. And I'm here with Shay, who has a really interesting job in the Coast Guard. Shay, tell the audience what you do. All right, everybody. So I am a Coast Guard helicopter mechanic. Uh, so I work on everything mechanically and structurally, uh, specifically towards the MH-65 Dolphin helicopter. Secondary to that, I also fly as air crew, and uh, I'm also a hoist operator for search and rescue. Search and rescue can be on land or sea, correct? That is correct, but for the Coast Guard, generally we are maritime only. Uh, whenever it comes to inland, especially in California, you have you know so many different search and rescue companies out here that primarily focus on inland. So generally the, the stuff we do get is, is in a maritime environment. And you're based out of San Francisco, correct? That is correct. And your area of coverage? So area of coverage uh, expands from San Francisco up north to right around the Humboldt Bay area, as well as down south towards the Los Angeles area. But that's not including our forward operating base in Point Magoo, which Air Station San Francisco supports. So at forward operating base Point Magoo, that also extends our area of responsibility down to around the San Diego area. So, Shay, since most people aren't familiar with uh, Coast Guard, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the mission actually is? Our primary mission, at least on the aviation side, is search and rescue. Uh, there are some units throughout the Coast Guard that deal with drug interdiction, migrant operations, things like that. Those crews are normally based off of the East Coast and, and Florida. But, I mean, something that a lot of people don't know is because we are the Department of Homeland Security, a lot of people don't know that the Coast Guard actually extends all throughout the world. Um, like, next month, I'm going on a deployment that's going to Southeast Asia, you know, and we're also in, in the Middle East, you know. So, so we're all over the world uh, building relations with, with different countries uh, and promoting a good, healthy, lawful maritime environment uh, on top of our search and rescue capabilities. Right, so not only in the ocean, you guys are also responsible for the inland waterways as well, correct? 
for the most part, yeah. So we actually have units up in uh, the Great Lakes area. Uh, we have a couple of aviation units as well as uh, uh, boat units uh, that support that area. For the most part, our, our boat units, they deal with like shoreline and uh, some offshore cases. But uh, yeah, for the most part, more in, a little bit more inland and, and shoreline. Mm-hmm. Are there any rescue missions that you can talk about? Uh, something challenging what makes what makes your day interesting so for me personally i just recently got qualified as a hoist operator so i have been on one sar case but it, instead of uh, our air crew being the one saving the life it was a, a life assistant so we were actually the ones that found them and the fire department that was nearby was able to pick them up uh, so so far that's been my experience in real-time scenarios but there are are plenty of, of guys that i work with who, who have some pretty pretty wild stories uh, but for an interesting day for me uh, like i said my primary job is as a mechanic so i have uh, pretty much taken the entire helicopter apart and put it all inspected it and put it all back together so as well as you know flying that being secondary it's still kind of a highlight to the day you know it is kind of nice to step away from work get on a helicopter go fly around uh, and, and especially in the Bay Area, it's absolutely gorgeous. It is beautiful there. Yeah. Now, as far as the education that you were provided, did you come into the service with a mechanical background, or did the Coast Guard teach everything that you needed to know? So I've always been keen towards the mechanical side of things. I never had really any formal training on it. Uh, it's just something that's always interested me. So initially joining the Coast Guard, I knew that I wanted to be a helicopter mechanic. And after going to our school in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, we learn general aviation, so it's not aircraft specific. At that school, uh, it's three months long, and then once you get to your unit, that's where you specify in that specific aircraft and learn how to work on it, as well as go flying on it. Now, with that school background, because it's general aviation, I could also work on the other airframes that we have in the Coast Guard. So I could potentially work on C-130s, C-144s, C-27s, or the MH-60 Blackhawk. So it seems like there are an awful lot of opportunities for you to grow within the Coast Guard. Exactly. Yep. I'm always interested where people are interested in being stationed next. What are you looking forward to? Early in my career, I was stationed in Alaska. Even though originally I'm from Arizona, I (laughs) fell in love with the mountains. Um, so I'm really hoping for Port Angeles, Washington. Yeah, I have a couple friends that are stationed up there right now, and they say it is absolutely beautiful. So Nice. Well, lots of luck with that. Hopefully you get it. Thank you so much for your service. Really appreciate what you do. Thank you for your support. All right. Well, thanks, Brian, for capturing those interviews. And bringing them to us all the way from South Africa. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's a good point, and and I didn't even know Brian spoke South African, but he seems to blend it in very, very well. Um, hey, can I just? I didn't put it in the list, but can I just add one thing that in the what's happening world? Uh, sure. This uh, this Friday is March the twenty first, and for those of us in the Chicagoland aviation community, it is a it is a bitter bittersweet day. Because it was 20 years ago this Friday that um, good old Mayor Richard M. Daly uh, took the back hose to uh, everybody's favorite little downtown city airport, uh, Chicago Megs, and destroyed it in the middle of the night. And um, 
we never forgave him for that, and uh, they've turned it into a, a park that nobody really wanted except the mayor. And uh, uh, not only what did he turn it into a park, but almost nobody uses it around the Chicagoland area. So, And, and without the authority to do it either. Oh, well, yeah, well, that's true. And he didn't have the authority to do it. But I was trying to be nice to the guy, you know, I mean. Are you guys ready for an Australia Disc report? Oh, wait, can I do it? Okay, well, you know, those guys will have to tell me if I got close. Dateline, 26th of March, 2023. Did you miss us, guys? Well, 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 I didn't miss having a week off, Grant. <laughs> I can tell you that much. <laughs> oh, oh, mate, it wasn't a week off for me, that's for sure. It wasn't a week off for either of us. We've been busy. Anyway, welcome, folks, to the Australia Desk for this week's episode number 743. Well, of course, Grant, you were busy. You were up doing commentary at yet another air show. <laughs> that's right, mate. I was up at Benalla, about uh, two, three hours north of Melbourne, depending on how fast you drive up the Hume Highway. And uh, Angela Stevenson and I were once again doing commentary together. Uh, and uh, yeah, we were covering the air show. Uh, Paul Bennett Air Show's team were there, and a number of other folks. It was it was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a good country air show. You know, the good thing about those sort of air shows, the, the, the country air shows, as you mentioned, Grant, is really the grassroots aspect of it. And it's something I think that in the United States, I know from my experience having, you know, done a lot of my flying training there, as most people know, it's it's a different feel over there in the US. But here, I think um, the, the grassroots nature of these local air shows here are so, so important for getting people, not only those who are already engaged in aviation to, to come and get their fix, obviously, but to you know, do a bit of dream building with, with other people who, you know, perhaps have driven past that airport here and there, but, you know, hey, let's just drop in and see what this is all about and who knows, maybe we can get a few more people getting the bug. That wouldn't be altogether a bad thing. I agree. Uh, there were a lot of kids there getting uh, very interested in aviation. There was some very good aerobatics, both solo and formation. Uh, there were some warbirds. The Sky Aces did a four-ship formation aerobatics like you saw if you were at Avalon. And, uh, yeah, then Paul did his solo display, which is absolutely amazing. And Glenn Graham did his one in the Edge 540, which is just fantastic. There was also the Heritage Trainers. Uh, so we had the Wirraway leading three CT4s. That was pretty cool to see. And uh, some gliders opened it up. Uh, we had a skydiver come in with the Aussie flag while Paul's doing rings around him in the Wolf Pits Pro. <laughs> Always, I feel sorry for the, the diver. You know, this jumper's trying to fly this dirty great flag and bring it in properly. And meanwhile, the buzzsaw of doom is spinning around him. <laughs> He does great work, Paul Bennett, and uh, Paul Bennett Air Shows, um, probably they try and model themselves, I think, in many ways on what you might see from someone in the States like Skip Stewart, that kind of mm. air show in a box type of thing, and really they're probably the only people here in Australia that do that, and uh, they have really got that down to a science now. They do a great job. They travel really all over Australia, predominantly, I'd say, probably up and down the East Coast, but uh, they do get around to other parts of Australia, and they, they really do put on a great show. Anyway, Grant, we should uh, get on to some of the aviation news of the week. And uh, yet again, it's not been a great week for helicopters and, uh, well, not military helicopters. And in fact, a type that won't be for much longer in Australian service, the MRH-90. 
Yeah, one decided to go for a swim in Jarvis Bay, south of Sydney, during a night exercise for uh, fast roping, uh, SAS and so on. Some Navy clearance divers, some special forces folks on, on board, all training. And yeah, things went wrong in a heck of a hurry. I think you've got some audio for it. I do. I have a uh, press conference, I quote here from the Army's Major General Stephen Jobson. Aviators of the 6th Aviation Regiment and personnel of the 2nd Commando Regiment were undertaking a routine counter-terrorism training exercise. At approximately 9pm, an MRH-90 helicopter incurred an incident that resulted in a ditching. As a consequence of the incident, Defence has issued an operational pause on the MRH-90 Taipan fleet and a safety investigation has commenced by the Defence Flight Safety Bureau. Now, OK, I think that probably the uh, the good takeaway from that is that nobody was uh, really seriously injured in that incident and uh, it looks like they actually weren't too far out into Jarvis Bay when that happened. So it, uh, it obviously uh, wasn't too much of a task uh, to get that aircraft recovered at least back to the shore so that that investigation can start. But, uh, Grant, the MRH-90 now, you know, um, we've reported uh, in previous Australia desks that the Australian Defence Force, the government, has uh, taken the decision to uh, retire that type uh, starting from next year. Uh, In fact, uh, I read here in an article by our good friend Andrew McLaughlin that um, the Navy uh, actually has ceased using the type altogether already. That's right. They they. Got rid of all theirs, uh, handed them back to the common pool. Uh, generally, there was a pool of airframes shared by Army and Navy. Um, Navy was only using six, Army using the majority. But as of last year, Navy decided they didn't want to use it anymore. They'd had a uh, tail rotor delamination off the coast of Queensland, which fortunately the aircraft, uh, the crew were like, this doesn't feel right. They flew back and landed on the LHD, the landing helicopter dock, like a mini aircraft carrier thing uh, that it was operating from. And that was where they discovered the tail rotor blade delaminating and in fact they went through the whole fleet and found a whole lot of them like that so navy said yeah we don't want to use these over water anymore army were training in jervis bay as you said they weren't that far out into the bay uh when this occurred of course the mrh 90 has flotation gear small boats towed it back to the shore so it was just sitting in the uh, water just near the beach and then eventually they put more flotation gear on it towed it back out and the Navy's vessel, the Reliant, uh, retrieved it. It's a very interesting ship, the Reliant, like a service vessel. Uh, they do a lot of training on it. It's got cranes, all that kind of stuff. So they uh, hoist, hoist it out of the water so, so that they can now take it away and do all that studying that they need to do to figure out what happened. And by the what the witnesses were saying, sounds like it lost a bit of power. They uh, were heading towards the water. They came back up from the uh, away from the surface and uh, then there was a big boom and flash and flame and everything up around the rotor and back into the water so i don't know it sounds like it could be a gearbox or an engine or something like that but whatever happened it wasn't good and they couldn't keep it in the air and down they went well i think the good thing was that the uh, the flight crew there was able to uh, bring that down in a safe manner which is uh, an absolute credit to them the australian defense force currently has a fleet of uh, 47 mrh 90s um now we don't know this is probably not something this could have happened to any type we don't know what the uh, the outcome of that investigation is going to be but uh Yeah, that type will be uh, replaced starting next year with a new fleet of Blackhawks. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens to that fleet. I wonder what they'll do with them, Grant. They'll probably sell them to another nation or some of them will go into civilian service. Well, that's going to be tricky. There's a lot of people who don't want them. Um, A number of countries that have these aircraft, they're known as the NH-90 in other parts of the world. We call them the MRH-90. But they're basically... 
a number of countries are ditching them. They're not happy with service, uh, access to parts, all that kind of thing. It's not really been the big success it's supposed to have been. Uh, the Kiwis are using them. They may grab some for parts and spares and so on. I'm not sure. But, yeah, just interesting that this particular type of helicopter, it's not just us having problems with them. Okay, Grant, we'll, we'll leave that one there. And just sticking with Defence briefly, Grant, a new heavy maintenance facility has been opened or reopened up in Brisbane, uh, servicing our KC-30A fleet and our uh, C-27J Spartans. That's right, mate. Northrop Grumman Australia has uh, opened their modified and modernised Brisbane Maintenance and Modification Centre. And so it's got a lot more capacity for expansion and it's able to take on uh, maintenance of those two airframes. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty good thing for uh, Queensland, 100 jobs basically, and uh, capacity for expansion, as I said. Yeah, a $20 million investment. So, uh, you know, that facility up there around Brisbane, uh, it's been very, very busy over the years. So it's good to see that uh, some money is being invested in it. Of course, there's a lot of money flying around defence in this part of the world at the moment. So I think a lot of uh, organisations are able to take advantage of that and and upgrade and modernise. So this is uh, certainly a very good example of that. Certainly is, mate. Certainly is. But, uh, mate, keeping a bit of a military theme, but let's move civilian. And uh, speaking of our Kiwi friends, uh, across the ditch over there in New Zealand, uh, friend Bevan Dews has uh, got his Harvard back in the air. Yeah, Grant's an article we read here in uh, warbirdnews.com and uh, Bevan Dews has a, uh, quote, an immaculately restored former Royal New Zealand Air Force Mark IIA, Harvard, and uh, it's uh, landed at its new home at Masterton here over in New Zealand uh, just this week and uh, that's been the result of a three-year rebuild effort. Yep, a lot of meticulous detail has gone into restoring this aircraft and keeping it as close to original as possible. And uh, those of you may know of Bevan, he uh, was at one point the youngest pilot in the world flying World War I aircraft. Uh, I think he was about 18 or so. He had uh, learned to fly at a young age and was doing a lot of work with the Vintage Aviator Limited who restore and make replicas and so on of World War I aircraft. Peter Jackson's involved in that operation, you know, Lord of the Rings man. So, yeah, Bevan learnt to fly and started cleaning floors, look, doing general duties and wound up becoming helping out as crew and then as a pilot on these World War One aircraft. So I had the privilege of running into Bevan and his partner over in uh, Oshkosh in 2019. We had a couple of days running around enjoying ourselves over there. It was great. It's interesting, Grant, uh, this aircraft rolled off the uh, North American Aviation's factory line in Dallas as an AT-6C in uh, the spring of 1943, according to this article, and the New Zealand Air Force uh, took delivery of that aircraft under a Lend-Lease Agreement in June of that year. Uh, It actually remained in service with the New Zealand Air Force until uh, late 1954, and uh, as late as 1971, in fact, uh, it was being used as a, uh, a training airframe for mechanics and airframes, that sort of stuff. So it's, it's certainly uh, it certainly made a very significant contribution to New Zealand, not only in uh, wartime service, but uh, in times beyond that. Yeah, and it's great to see that Bevan's uh, picked it up in 2020 and uh, spent a lot of effort getting it back in the air. So looking at the photos, it's a magnificent restoration. Yeah, it certainly is, Grant. And uh, i tell you what, speaking of restorations, the restoration of Plane Crazy Down Under is... Uh, Underway as we speak, the first episode, uh, which was called uh, Push Back and Start. See what I did there with that fancy title name, Grant. A nice aviation, Push Back and Start. That one's been live for a couple of weeks now. Thanks to everybody who's downloaded that episode. We've really appreciated the uh, the downloads we've had. And, of course, uh, we've had some good feedback too, which we also appreciate. You can send us some bad feedback if you want. I mean, we can 
can always delete it. I mean, no, that's not true. <laughs> I am really offended at yahoo.com, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. And, uh, of course, uh, as uh, this uh, episode of the Airplane Geeks goes to air, the second in our new series uh, will be just going live, and that's featuring a great interview with our good friend, uh, airline pilot and uh, journalist Owen Zup. And uh, really happy with the way that one came together. So, uh, yeah, check us out, plainecrazydownunder.com. We'd really appreciate it. But I guess enough shameless self-promotion, Grant. Until next week, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we'll be back with more shameless self-promotion in another week or so. You bet. The the shamelessness and self-promotion never ends here on this side of the world. Oh, not, not at uh, Southern Skies Media, that's for sure. <laughs> These guys are really funny. You know, I was trying, Max, you would remember this. How long had those guys been doing Plain Crazy Down Under before they sent the first Australia desk to the airplane case? Um, I think, didn't it go the other way around? Didn't they, uh, they started sending Oz desks to us and then ultimately decided, hey, let's, let's start a podcast. And they started Plain Crazy Down Under. What happened was they were doing segments, and this guy by the name of Max Flight kept complaining they were getting longer and longer and longer and longer. So they figured, okay, well, I guess if we've reached that point, we probably should start our own. You know, I'm going to regret saying this, but I miss those guys. Yeah, I know. I know. They're, they're wonderful. Now, they, they are, you know, they, they are they, alive. Yeah. Now, they, they took a multi-year hiatus with the podcast, their podcast, Playing Crazy Down Under. And so as you heard uh, Steve just mentioned, they, uh, they've restarted it, rebooted it. And it's always tough because uh, when you take a few years off, you know, the audience drifts away and it, you've got to rebuild it pretty much from the beginning. So uh, especially those of you who subscribed to Playing Crazy Down Under in the past, you know, it's they're back. For those of you who uh, who didn't or who uh, didn't have that opportunity, didn't know about it, check it out, plainecrazydownunder.com, and you can find it in, you know, in your podcast app. Just just search for that and you'll find it. So we're we're really excited that these guys are are doing back are, are back doing what they have uh, always done so well. And you know what the craziest part about them coming back was? This this is just wonderful. That their first, their welcome back episode was their goodbye episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, we've got a little bit of listener mail. I know we're running a little bit long, I think. Uh, we heard from from John. Now, we, we were talking, was this last episode, uh, Rob, or recently anyway, about small children on commercial flights and car seats and all. And John wrote to us and said, as my wife and I have been researching possibly flying from New Jersey to SoCal with kids under the age of six, in general, we've come across a lot of parents who have had extremely hard times carrying on infant and young kid car seats and actually using them on board the airplane. They have received a lot He's got that in caps. A lot of pushback from the cabin crew saying they are not allowed to be used on the airplane. If the airlines are all about safety, John writes, why is there so much pushback? Is it really a safety issue or is it a time constraint in getting the seat installed and everybody in their seat before taxi time? Just a thought. Thanks for your time. And again, that's from John. 
Well, I remember mentioning that that I had a lot of pushback from the flight attendants when when I tried to bring the uh, car seat on for Abigail, and that was twenty. Gosh, I can't. Remember. Long time ago, and uh, but but I also have since uh, been through this with my niece who has a uh, what is it now? December, January, a four month old who they just took to uh, to California. And uh, we had the conversation about uh, I'm not I'm not Riley's parents. I can't tell you what to do. I can just tell you that carrying an infant on on board an airplane. And she went, "Oh, Uncle, I'm going to have him in one of those have her in one of those things that you know they kind of put them on the front like a uh, a papoose on the front uh, kind of basket." And I said, "Do you realize what what will happen if?" If you if you are thrown forward at, during a, a, an accident, and where, where's the baby going to be? And she went, oh, I I just never thought of it that way. And, but anyway, so we found a list of uh, what they call TSA certified car seats. I I did not know uh, that there were such things until just this last week. Uh, but maybe somebody might want to Google or or even go up to the TSA. Uh, uh, dot gov site and see if there is uh, some information about those uh, those car seats because apparently they're not all even better rob max and i did a little bit of research max did most of it i have to say and i did some oh so you knew you had something planned and and you just wanted me to trip all over myself you see those you see those uh, that show plan in front of you uh, rob that With you're following along i I, I'm not looking at it. I can tell. I, I but go ahead, Micah. Tell tell them, uh, tell people what we found. I found the FAA website that talks about uh, all, all of this and the lap children, and it explains how there are approved seats, and if they're stamped, then the airline must allow it on. And one of the things that I thought was very important on that site was it said that after children, after a child is over 44 pounds, he or she is no longer needs a safety seat uh, on an airline and can safely use a regular seat belt. And there's also the, the ARM uh, Safe Child Aviation Restraint System or CARES device that's available for uh, children who are up to 40 inches tall and who weigh between 22 and 44 pounds. But the airlines, and this is where Max did an incredible amount of research and found the pages, the, at least the U.S. airlines, United and American and Delta, have policies on their website and shows that you can use car seats that are approved. All the car seats have a label on them and that are approved. And if you have a car seat like that, they can't stop you. And if they do stop you, you can go right to their webpage or the FAA's webpage. And I just checked the FAA webpage was updated December of 2022. So it's it's current. And we'll have links to all of that in the show notes uh, on our website, the FAA webpage for flying with children, and uh, also, the, as Micah mentioned, the pages from United, American Airlines, and Delta. And if you are flying on another airline with children, with very small children or infants, and are concerned about this issue, uh, just check your airline's website and look for traveling with children or traveling with infants or something like that. And uh, I think almost any uh, any airline will have the policy stated pretty clearly. Well, and if I could just add one thing, I mean, I did know all of that that you guys just mentioned. And that was my way of, you know, kind of throwing it over to you guys, uh, uh-huh. looking like the poor, un 
uneducated consumer who was just going to say, gee, I wish somebody knew more about it than I do. And you guys jumped right in. So nice job, guys. Thanks. Thanks for the assist, Rob. Really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. One more. We heard from Dag. Dag has an idea that I think uh, could be could be interesting. Dag writes to us, hi, geeks. You have briefly talked about yourselves on the show, but I was wondering if you guys could go into a bit of a story about each of your aviation careers. He says, thank you so much for keeping up the legacy of a great show. And here's the part that Micah was referring to earlier. Every episode has better guests and better jokes. (laughs) He's very kind. You know what I always say, Max, is the humor is free, but you get what you pay for. Here we go. I thought he was actually, when I read this, I thought he was going to say, and for keeping up the charade. But then I looked, (laughs) I went, oh, that's not what he said. No, no. So, uh, yeah, so maybe what we could do is, uh, if you guys are game, is uh, we'll do, you know, one of us each episode, let's say, and just tell a little story about our aviation background, how we got into it what we've done. Rob is grimacing. Rob, you've got an interesting story. Well, I, I know. I'm just wondering what the time limit would be. Because oh, for you? About, oh, I don't know, 15, I've had a lot of jobs. Seconds. I can't hold on a job. So <laughs> I, I, you know, but okay. I'm... So let's, uh, let's plan on doing it. So who wants to go first? Who wants to go next week? Uh, David does. You know, or I think David's asleep. No, I'm wide awake. Okay, okay. So we could go with David or we could go with uh, Trescott since he's not here. That sounds fair. Yeah, wait a minute. You know what? What? I'm pinch hitting for Trescott. Yeah, absolutely. Next week. <laughs> Trescott's on. All right, we'll have to tell him. Hopefully, uh, maybe we shouldn't tell him so he can't uh, skip out next week. But <laughs> now we'll tell him. Yeah, then he'd get back at me. Well, you're pinch hitting. Time for you to go, Micah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. Hey, we really want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Uh, We we have a blast doing this. We hope you have a blast listening. Uh, If you've gotten to this part of the show, then we're going to assume that you found it interesting, valuable, and uh, we we really appreciate your support. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. We have show notes there for every episode, lots of links, the stuff we talk about. You mean the part that I didn't read. Uh, the part that you didn't read yeah. is going to be there. Yep, yep. All of that's there. Uh, of course, uh, you can go directly to the show notes for this episode uh, if you're you know, listening to this at some time down the future. So you don't have to scroll, scroll, scroll to get to it. That's by going to airplanegeeks.com slash 743. That's the episode number. You can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. Okay, Rob, Mark, where do folks find you? Uh, usual places, uh, Jetwine, uh, uh, BCNA, which is Business Commercial Aviation, uh, some AOPA Pilot, uh, where else? Uh, I don't know. You, hopefully not in the slammer. That's all that really matters, I think. But, uh, uh, you know, and who knows? Uh, hopefully up at AirVenture this summer. Uh, could be. Very good. All right, David Vanderhoof. How about you? Where do we find you, David? Um, He's right here. He's right there. <laughs> Not asleep, though. I feel like I should be. Um, David, what you are could... you wearing? Yeah, that's a great sweatshirt. 
I it's a, I it's got a, freezing uh, cold and I three, got my R2D2, R2-D2 sweatshirt. Isn't it? Yeah. Yes. It's my R2D2 sweatshirt. Well, stand up. We can back off just a little so we can. Yeah, yeah so see. our listeners can see it. <laughs> Imagine, if you will, R2D2. That's what David looks like right now. That's right. So, My, where can we find you? You can find me at the American Helicopter Museum. Um, as always, just send me an email. Um, I'm always there. So, um, I, I look forward to always having our listeners show up and, and introduce themselves. I, I do keep a stash of Airplane Geeks buttons at my desk. So, if you show up and say you're a fan, you might go home with an Airplane Geeks button. And, of course, you can find me on social media and occasionally on the Friday morning show called the UAV Digest. Very good. And how about you, Micah? Well, you can find me at least for a while with Brian Coleman on the Journey is a Reward podcast. We should be recording, well, it might be our last episode, I hope not, but that should be happening sometime, I guess, toward the end of next week when Brian gets back from South Africa. And by the way, that uh, email address that uh, Grant, <laughs> Stephen Grant gave out, I am really offended at yahoo.com. That's an actual email address that Brian created for anyone we might offend on the Journey is a Reward podcast. So if you write to it, Brian will get it. But anyway, but you can find me there. And then also I'm on Twitter and sometimes Mastodon. And the ID there is at Mainfly. That's M-A-I-N-E like the state and fly like F-L-Y. Brian's going to be flying back from South Africa and getting to 3 million miles on United early next week. That's just amazing. Are are we on TikTok? Uh, No, we're not. Oh, okay. Should, Would you like to be on TikTok? Be on TikTok? I don't know. No. Yeah. yeah, but the clock is ticking, so, you know. Let's, That's right. Let's, let's get this going. <laughs> yeah. All right. You can find out where I hang out online at 30,000feet.com. All words spelled it out. So please join us next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Nighty night. See you real soon. Thanks for listening. Why? Because... We like you.